Well, I've got us just about time to go, so thank you for coming tonight. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6, and I think I'll read the text. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways." You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and all the inspired books of the Bible. We thank you for the privilege we have of going through Haggai. And I pray that as we take a journey through it, that you would minister to our minds and hearts, Lord, and instruct us by the power of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, I've read or heard some funny excuses that people make for various things. There was a wife who asked her husband to go to the gym with her, and he said, I can't go because I need to lose a few pounds first. There was a young man who was speeding, who was pulled over by a police officer, and the officer said, don't you know I can arrest you? And the young man said, no, you can't. I don't have my license. (laughs) Then there was a guy who was trying to make excuse for not exercising. He said, well, I can't go for a jog today because I hurt my finger. I think one of the funniest excuses I ever heard was from Jerry Speedy, who's now with the Lord. He was traveling from a meeting with his company somewhere in the south and he was coming back on 131 and he was heading home after a meeting and he was doing 70 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone and the police officer pulled him over and he walked to Jerry and said do you know how fast you were going he goes yeah I was going 70 he said do you know what the speed limit is here and he goes yes it's 55 but Jerry said it should be 70 because 55 isn't right Well, the police officer got laughing, and he said, you sound just like my dad, so he let him go. I thought that was funny. Excuses can be funny, but not when it comes to God, and not when it comes to obeying the word of God and doing the will of God. There's nothing funny about disobedience, and that point is very clear as this book of Haggai begins. Now, according to verse 1, it had been about 16 to 17 years since Cyrus permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in 538 B.C. It was now the second year reign of king of Persia, whose name was Darius. So now we're in the year of 520 B.C. And the day is specifically said to be, it was the first day of the sixth month. And that is critical, the first day of the sixth month. Write down in your notes there, Numbers 28.11. Numbers 28.11. Because every first day of the month, the people of God were supposed to go to the temple or tabernacle and present a burnt offering. The problem is, on this first day of the month, there was no temple standing. So they couldn't do it. And instead of the temple being rebuilt, 
And instead of the people thinking about God, the fact of the matter is they were sitting around doing nothing for the Lord. And so what we see when Haggai opens is the people were making excuses for not obeying God. The people were making excuses for not doing what God wanted them to do. Now, this is a message that I think is needed in churches and in individual lives because it's so easy to become complacent. And this is how the book opens. We get a glimpse here as to what was going on. And verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. So the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai. They had not heard a word from God in about 16 years. So it's been a 16-year gap of time since God had spoken to them. And now here comes Haggai, and he's going to try to get them to get going again for the Lord. And how do you do that? I mean, how do you motivate people? How do you revive a church? How do you revive a nation? Well, if you look at what the formula is here, you feed them the word of God. You take a man of God, like Haggai, who's a prophet, and you take that man of God and you have that person go to the people of God and communicate the word of God. That's what God's doing here. He's sending his man to communicate his word to his people. Now, verse 1 gives us a list of six key people by name. We have Darius and Haggai and Zerubbabel, and we have Shealtiel and Joshua and Jehozadak. Darius was the king of Persia who had affirmed the decree of Cyrus. He allowed these Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. He reauthorized it. This is Darius I, Darius Hustapus, who's reigned from 522 to 486 B.C., he restored the Persian Empire that had been founded by Cyrus the Great. This Darius is not the Darius the Mede of the book of Daniel, but this Darius lived years later. So the people of God cannot blame the government for their lack of their commitment to God and his word. And you, you can't do that today. You can't blame the government for your lack of commitment to anything that pertains to God. People cannot blame government if they choose not to go to church because the government gives them freedom to go to church. So you can't lay that on the government. And so this leader, Darius, has made it possible for these people of God to actually be there and get this work done. Secondly, you have Haggai, who was the prophet of God. He was a contemporary of Zechariah. We don't know a lot about his pedigree. We don't know much about him except he was a prophet of God. And what we learn about prophets of God is that whenever God wants something done, he has somebody go to the people and communicate his word. In fact, that's the way it works in any dispensation. Whenever God does anything, he's always going to use somebody to do it. I mean, he could send angels to do it, but he doesn't do it. He sends people to do it. This Haggai, who's his prophet, was his chosen guy, and his job is you go and you speak my word to the people. Then you have Zerubbabel. He was the grandson of King Jehoiachin, who had been appointed governor of Judah. He's the one who led the Jews to return from Babylon back to the promised land in 538 BC. And in part, it was his lack of courage when they ran into some opposition that stopped the building of the temple. He was part of the leadership that didn't trust the Lord and keep the people moving forward. And Zerubbabel is specifically singled out here as being the recipient of this message and of this book. He's the political leader. And God's going to hold him responsible to point people to the importance of having a right relationship with God. Now, he made some mistakes. Obviously, when he 
kind of backed off from getting the temple rebuilt. That was a mistake. But he ends up being honored. He ends up at the end of this book being honored by the Lord because he regrouped and he refocused and he corrected the mistakes. Then you have Shealtiel, who's the father of Zerubbabel. Luke traces him back to Nathan, who was David's son. So there's real royalty in this line of Zerubbabel. Now, in 1 Chronicles 3.19, the text says that Padiah was Zerubbabel's father, yet Luke specifically says it was Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. So how do you explain that? Well, the best explanation is that Deuteronomy Leveret marriage law, Shealtiel probably had died, and Padiah, Shealtiel's brother, married Shealtiel's widow, and she bore a son and then carried on the family name, and that's the explanation for that. And then you have Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. He's the one who came back from Babylon when the Jews returned to Jerusalem. He was the spiritual leader who was responsible to point the people in the right ways of the Lord. Joshua was the second leader who is the recipient of the book of Haggai. He was the religious and spiritual leader, and it was his job to promote the importance of keeping God first and obeying the word of God. The sixth guy that's named there is Jehozadak who was the father of Joshua the high priest. You can trace him back to the line of Aaron. He had been the high priest during the deportation of the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and he was kept in Babylon, basically as a locked-up prisoner during the entire captivity. Now, these are your critical players, and they become a link from the past to the present. They're critical leaders, and they have a responsibility to lead people to realize the importance of them getting things done for the Lord. They have a responsibility to point people into a right relationship with God. These leaders needed to lead a revival and a restoration to the things of the Lord, and they needed to prompt God's people to take right action. And I will tell you this, based on this book of Haggai and other passages of Scripture, God is going to hold political leaders and religious leaders highly accountable for the direction they led the people. They're going to be seriously held accountable for the direction they led the people. If a leader, a political leader, whether it be a president or a governor of a state or a mayor of a city, if that political leader did their best to point people to the true God of the Bible and point them in the direction of the word of God and the things of God, they are going to experience some amazing blessings from the Lord. On the other hand, If a political leader did not point them in the direction, they're going to suffer very, very serious judgment. And the same is true for religious leaders. God expects religious leaders to point people to the word of God, to understand the word of God, and to obey the word of God. And certainly one thing we see here is God's people need God's leadership to courageously continue to focus on God and his word. I mean, if the people don't have leaders that keep that focus, how can they be expected to keep that focus? So these leaders are singled out right at the beginning, and God is basically saying, you have a job to do, and your job is to point these people to the word of God and the will of God. Now, these leaders knew what it was like to at one time have the blessings of God in Israel because some of them had seen the temple. When it was standing in all of its glory, now they're looking at rubbles. And they realized that there was a time when God was truly blessing us. They knew what it was like to have worship services, the excitement of going to hear the word of God and the people gathering to hear the word of God. Well, they needed to get the people to focus back on that again. So as that book opens with the introduction of that, now you get to the two main parts of the opening. 
The first part is God's people were making excuses for not doing it. Verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now I want you to notice the proper noun that Haggai uses for God. He calls him the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts versus what says the people. So we have a real contrast right at the beginning between what God says, what the people were saying, and what a contrast this is going to be. And this has always been a problem. What does God say? What do the people say? I mean, you want the people to be saying what God says, but that isn't the case here. And I want to point out that proper noun, Lord of hosts. Haggai uses that title some 14 times in these two chapters. And I've listed all the references for you in your notes. Now, the Hebrew word Lord is Jehovah, sovereign covenant God of Israel who can do whatever he wants. And the noun host, Tesabeoth, means armies. Now, the armies can be literal human armies or the angelic armies or the heavenly armies. What Haggai wants to do is he wants to emphasize to the people, do you realize that you have a relationship with a sovereign God who's sovereignly in control of everything, including the heavens and the earth? He controls the heavens. He controls the earth. He's sovereign over all of it. He controls the weather. And we've just seen a powerful display of the weather. I actually love it when that thunder roars. And I like seeing that lightning flash because that's God. That's coming right out of heaven. And it is symptomatic of the fact that God is one day going to judge the world. So when you see that, just know that's God who's doing all of that stuff. He's sovereign over all things. And that's what Haggai wanted the people to understand by using this phrase, Lord of hosts, over and over again. He wanted the people of God to realize he's sovereign over things in heaven. He's sovereign over things on earth. He has all might. He has all power. He can do whatever he wants to do. So you have no excuse. You have no excuse that's going to be acceptable when God has this kind of power that he's willing to give to his people if they just obey him. Now, what the people were saying, God's saying, get this temple rebuilt. What the people were saying is, oh, the timing isn't right. No, it's just the timing isn't right to rebuild the temple. Now, there are times when the timing isn't right. For example, there are times when one should speak, and there are times when one should be silent. And knowing when to speak and when to be silent is a mark of wisdom. We learn that from the scriptures. In Paul's ministry, there were times when the timing just wasn't right for him to go to a certain place. For example, we're going to introduce the book of Romans, and he had a passion to want to go to Rome. I mean, he wanted to take the gospel to Rome for a long time, but the timing just wasn't right. So there are times when things just aren't the right timing. And we know there is a time period of the Gentiles that we're in right now in which God is basically calling out people that are non-Jewish into his family but we also know that there will be a time that will be focused on the nation Israel. So understanding timing is important. But these people were sitting around doing nothing, and they were using as an excuse, the timing just isn't right for us to do it. And they had been sitting around doing nothing for about 16 years. They had been justifying the fact that they weren't doing anything. They are the ones that stopped building in the first place. And they started getting more focused on their own house than they did God. Their house became their idol. They were consumed with their house. 
These were people who were putting their own house and their own career and their own family above the Lord. They were putting their own prosperity at the top of the list and they were putting God way down on the list. Their excuse was the timing isn't right. And that sounds so pious, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds so religious. It sounds even almost spiritual. Because if you just take that at face value, it would sound like the people are really tuned into the timing of God. What a joke. What a joke. And we've seen that many times with people that make excuses for not going to church. Nah, the timing's not right for us to give God three hours a week. We're just so busy. We only get the weekend to relax. We've got to get things done around the house. We can't be going to church. The timing isn't right. The timing isn't right for us to focus on the things of God. I got my own house to worry about. So let's just put God back on the back burner somewhere and and I'll fit him in when I can, when I think the timing is right. And now we've got a new excuse. It's this virus. I mean, people will go to a store and they'll go to doctors and they'll go to restaurants and they'll go get stuff for their own house, but the timing isn't right yet for us to go back to church because there's been this virus. But what God's people need to realize is the timing is always right when it comes to focusing on the Word of God and obeying it. I mean, that is not an option for God's people. The timing is always right to turn the word of God and seek to apply it. There's no bad timing in that. There's no bad timing for someone to ever say, I'm going to get serious about understanding the scriptures and applying it to my life. That's a lame excuse. If you're going to use the excuse, the timing just isn't right. Which brings us to the second part. God speaks through his prophet Haggai to tell his people their timing's wrong. It's interesting that Haggai does not name or mention the main sins that plague the nation. He doesn't preach against idolatry. He doesn't preach against evil behavior. He doesn't preach against injustice or false prophets or priests. What he talks about is you have a real lack in your spirituality. You're neglecting to put God first in your life. You've got your own house more important than God. And that's what he addresses here. And by the way, it's not Haggai who's making this up. This is the word of the Lord. But he makes that very clear. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai is just like a mouthpiece for God. He's just going to the people, communicating what God told him to go and communicate. And there are three messages that he gives to the people. He says, number one, do you think it's time for you to live in a nice house when God's house is desolate? That's what he says in verse four. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate. Now that idea of a paneled house was the idea of, boy, you're fixing your house up at a luxurious level. We're not talking here about just slapping some plywood on a wall. This language describes a luxurious type of house that's been built with expensive materials, expensive wood. And oftentimes, this wood was imported cedar paneling that was used in plush homes. And this word is used for that kind of thing. As I understand it, the people did not just have a roof over their heads. They're living in plush homes. They spent a lot of years and a lot of money making sure their houses had everything. I mean, they were investing thousands and thousands of dollars in their own houses. And God says, do you think that's right? 
Do you think it's right that you spent the last 15 to 16 years making your own house just this wonderful, plush existence, and my house isn't even standing in existence? That's the first message that Haggai gave to the people. Secondly, it's time for you to carefully consider your ways. He says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's time for you to carefully think about this. It's time for you to carefully think about the direction you're heading. God says, your priorities are off track here. And he said, consider your ways. Literally, it means you need to set your mind and heart on something. It's not right. And Haggai uses that challenge, as we pointed out in our introduction a couple of weeks ago, multiple times in the book. He said, I want you to think carefully about this. And that's what God's saying. I want you to think carefully about this. You think carefully about this with your mind and heart. You give careful attention to this. You consider this. And what you need to carefully consider is the status of your heart. You have to ask yourself, well, how come we're not interested in the things of God at the same level we're interested in our own house? Why is it we're not interested in rebuilding the temple? I mean, it isn't just a physical building issue. It's a heart issue. It has been well observed that the book of Haggai has often been used to promote a building program of the church, but if we look carefully at what Haggai's doing here, he's not promoting a building program. He's promoting heart analysis. I mean, the problem is not the physical building. It's a spirituality problem. This was not just an issue of a building. This is an issue of a heart. I mean, if you take a person who's in the family of God and they're more concerned about their own house than they are worship if they're more concerned about their own bank account than they are God, it's a heart issue. It's a real heart issue. People have the wrong focus with their lives. And at this point, they were more focused on themselves and their own homes than they were the Lord. And when you see a church that is physically in disrepair, it's easy to question the commitment level of the membership. And when you see a life of a believer that's all focused on themselves and their own house more than they are the Lord. Something is wrong. Their commitment level of membership is not the problem. The heart's the problem. What was needed with these people of God is for God's people to consider their ways and take a good, honest look at their own hearts. And God helps them think about things. So he doesn't just say, let me just leave this up for grabs, what you ought to think about. He, he kind of narrows this down for them, and God gives them some things he wants them to consider. His third message is the reason you don't seem to have enough, and the reason why you aren't having a satisfying life, is because you've left me, my word, my will, my worship out of your life. He says in verse 6, you've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a house with holes. When God's people don't put God first in their lives, mark this in your thinking, they'll never get what they're looking for. I don't care how long they look for it or where they look. They'll never find it. They'll never achieve what they want 
if God's not first in their lives. God will not be mocked by his own people. He's not going to let his own people have an abundant, satisfying life if they're trying to put him on the back burner of life. And never forget this about God. He has the sovereign power not to bless one thing his people do. He can allow, as we saw in Deuteronomy, a whole world to fall apart. Making excuses for not putting him first is not the key to getting out of that. The key to getting out of that is saying, you know, I've got to get my heart right with the Lord. I mean, I've got to get back on track here. He can absolutely bless people, but he can also prevent blessings from people. And Haggai had some good specific physical illustrations that he could point to, that God's word was telling him to point to, that indicated that their hearts were not right with God, and this list of things comes directly from the Lord. I mean, Haggai's not the one who's inventing this list. This is coming from God. God gave a list of realities that they could look at right then. They could take an honest look right then, and they could determine, you know, we are way off track in our relationship with God. So what God says is, I want you to take a look at your economic situation, because your economic situation and what's going on in your world proves you aren't right with me. There are five realities he points out. He said, I've prevented you from accomplishing things you could have accomplished had you been willing to put me first. Reality number one, you've sown much, but you harvest little. That's what he says in verse six. You've sown much, but you harvest little. They're crops. I mean, they were getting crops. They were eking out an existence, but they weren't producing the way they should. They were living in the promised land. They should be thriving. Instead, they were barely surviving. You know, we're the people of God. We're supposed to be producing. We're supposed to be producing fruit. And one reason why some of God's people never seem to see God do much of anything is they're so caught up with themselves or their own world, and they've lost a heart relationship with the Lord. They need to refocus. Think about this. Get regrouped and get going again. Because... They've sown much, harvest a little. Secondly, they eat food, but you don't have enough food. That's what he says in verse 6. You eat, but there's not enough. These were God's people living in the promised land. God's people living in the promised land that should have been a land of milk and honey, flowing with blessings. God said, take a look at how much you have to eat. You're just trying to figure out if you're going to have enough groceries. It shouldn't have been like that. They should have had stockpiles of food. Thirdly, you drink your wine. You don't have enough to become drunk. You can just have a few sips. That's what he's basically saying there in verse 6. You don't have enough wine because I haven't blessed the grape industry and I haven't blessed the vineyards and I haven't blessed you in your wine. Then, fourthly, you wear your clothing, but you don't even have enough to keep warm. Again, these are God's people. God's people that are just barely living life. And they barely had enough clothing to even stay warm and fifthly, you earn wages, you don't have anything to save, you don't save anything. In other words, what God's saying through Haggai is you people live from paycheck to paycheck. You're God's people. You have people out there that aren't even God's people don't live like that. But you're God's people. And you live from paycheck to paycheck, you never have enough 
to pay your bills. You have no savings account. You have a life that's lean and you have a life that's futile. Why is that that the people of God would have a life like that? Because God was not first in their lives. They were just existing. They were just surviving because they wouldn't put God first in their lives and God wasn't prospering them. Now, you would naturally think that these people of God would say, you know, maybe we better consider this. Maybe we better think about this. Maybe we need to analyze where we're at in our relationship with God because life is just not going right. Maybe these people should analyze themselves and consider the fact that, you know, we should be showered with blessings. We should be experiencing the great blessings of the Lord. Maybe our focus isn't right. Maybe we need to get back to the basics of focusing on the Word of God and the will of God. I can give literal illustrations of this. When couples are going to get married, we meet with them and we go over several things. And one of the things we discuss and one of the areas we discuss is things that have ruined marriages. And one of them is money. I've seen money ruin marriages. I could tell you stories and stand here and tell you a lot of stories, but I'm not going to. But when I meet with a couple, I say to the couple this. Now look, I'm going to give you a real simple biblical formula when it comes to money. You follow this formula and God will bless you. Follow this formula and God will bless you. It comes straight out of the book of Proverbs. Number one, give some to God. Start right there. Don't cheat God. Give some to God. Calculate what you are able to give and give it to the Lord. Give it right up front to the Lord. Number two, spend some for your bills and on yourself. And number three, save some for the future. Come straight out of the book of Proverbs. This is not something I'm dreaming up here about financial planning. This comes right out of the book of Proverbs. Give some, save some, spend some. I mean, that's right out of the book of Proverbs. I can't tell you the number of couples that listen to that and don't do it. Don't do it. And if somebody gets shorted in that list of things, it's usually God. So down the road, when you see those couples months, years later, they're just paycheck to paycheck. And they're just basically eking out an existence because they do not and will not take an honest look at their own hearts and do what's right before God the Lord. Self-centeredness that loses a focus on God will never have prosperity that will be blessed of God. Never forget that. If you want to spend your life focused on yourself, that's your choice. If you want to spend your life focused on your own self-interest, that's your choice. If you want to leave God out of that, that's your choice. But understand this, that will not bring economic stability, and it will not bring the blessings of God to your life. All of their economic efforts were suffering here. God's the one who came up with the list. I didn't. All of their economic efforts were suffering here because they left God out. And you see, this is what God's people need to realize. Every single person who's connected to God needs to realize this. I can rob myself of the blessings of God if I want to. I can actually rob myself of God's blessings by just focusing on me. 
focusing on my house, focusing on my stuff, I can rob myself of the blessings of God. This is the Lord of hosts. We're talking about a God who has all sovereign power over everything in heaven and on earth. We're talking here about a God who's able to bless his people, God who's able to turn circumstances around, God who's able to come into a person's world and bless them physically and economically and spiritually. But before he's going to do that, before he's going to do that, God's people must carefully consider and examine their hearts. And some who are dispensationalists would probably say, well, this is Old Testament Israel, and it really doesn't apply to the New Testament church. Well, then I remind you of what Jesus said when he was here on earth. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He said that in a context of tangible blessings. The specific things he mentions in that context are food and clothes and drink. So you carefully consider that as people of God. God will bless people that keep him first in their hearts. That's exactly the first message that Haggai communicated to God's people when he began his book. Don't keep making excuses for why you can't do it. God's people need to quit making excuses. Take a good, honest, introspective look at their own hearts. Ask God to search you. I need to do the same work. Ask God to search us. See if there are things we can do that will just enhance him being able to bless us. That's a wise way to live our life. And that's exactly what Haggai is trying to communicate to these people. That expounds the first six verses. Well, our time is long gone tonight. I want to thank you for coming out on this evening. Good night. The Lord bless you.